Hello and welcome back to Popcorn. I'm Steve Drost and this is my podcast wherein I discuss popular culture, movies, books, television, and perhaps from time to time music. Salutations to all five of you. This is episode four and if I had timed everything correctly and I would just like to point out that there is a precedent for me not necessarily doing that exact thing on a consistent basis, This episode would have been uploaded as of Friday the 27th or Saturday the 28th of March, but something went haywire with my recording software for a few weeks before I finally managed to figure out a usable workaround. For those of you who are more technically minded, this might be interesting. The rest of you are going to be bored for the next few minutes, but I did think it might be helpful to explain some of this, if for no other reason than to help other people avoid my mistakes. So the first mistake I had made was using a low-quality microphone. I may have mentioned this in one of the first episodes, but the microphone I was using was a stock microphone that came packaged with my original Dell computer about 10 years ago or so. It's a cheap accessory item, so I guess it should not have come as much of a surprise to me when it started giving me fits. When I started the podcast, it served me well with the addition of a pop filter made from a sock wrapped around a coat hanger. Go ghetto or go home, I always say. Actually, I've never said that, but it sounds good, so I think I might start. Anyways, a few weeks ago, I started having some weird problems with the recordings, and I'm pretty sure the fault was with the microphone. I thought at first that I might have been having a problem with the settings in Audacity, which is the software application that I use to process and edit the program, But after several days of messing around and consulting with a guy I know, who is something of a computer expert, who also happens to be my son, hello Christian, I decided that the advice he was giving me was probably right, and I needed to start using a different microphone. He and I had discussed the possible use of a better quality microphone that he might have had access to, but we ran into some problems there too. First, because he co-owns the microphone with a friend, and his friend might be using the microphone at the moment. And second, about the time that I started really needing a new microphone, or at least some kind of new audio solution, the whole COVID-19 crisis started blowing up, and we haven't really seen much of each other over the past month or so, what with social distancing and all. I got fed up with waiting for social distancing to be over, and decided to look a little closer at using what I had on hand. I decided to try using the microphone on my cell phone, recording into the voice recorder app, and then transferring the raw files to my computer and editing them with Audacity. This proved to be theoretically a halfway functional solution, except for the fact that I needed to download some new add-ons for Audacity in order to convert from the default file type on my phone, which is M4A, to the file type my listeners, I assume, would like best, which is MP3. Just as a matter of interest, I would like to say hello to whoever it is that's listening from Ireland, which is where Anchor tells me that at least half of my listening audience is. So that's cool. So at that point, I had a better solution going, but it still wasn't as good as I would have liked because I still had kind of a crappy microphone setup. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, and I was experiencing no small amount of angst because I had been determined to make sure that I carried through with this vision of having my own podcast, and I still wanted to make it happen. But when COVID-19 hit, it came with a surprise. I'm sure most of you were surprised when the plague happened, and I imagine my story is not much different from a lot of other ones you're hearing out there. We had to change our paradigm at the drop of a hat. That included the relationship between my work and my home life. Suddenly, 
instead of commuting two hours a day on public transit, I was working from home and trying to figure out the logistics of how that was supposed to function. I have to say that I didn't much care for it at first, but I'm getting used to it now. And I was very pleased yesterday when something arrived unexpectedly by courier. My employer had ordered headsets for us to use with the cell phones that they had provided us for work. Not only did I not know the headset was coming, but even if I had known, I really wouldn't have expected them to be all-in-one gaming headsets with boom microphones attached to them. I feel little to no guilt at all about using this piece of equipment for something other than work, and so today's episode is brought to you by the Onikuma K19 gaming headset. I've tested this thing as many different ways as I could think of, including playing several rounds of Doom with it, and this is the configuration I've settled on, and I think it sounds pretty good. I've done some online research and determined that it's by far not the most high-end or best quality headset in the world. It retails for about $30 to $40 Canadian, and that's dirt cheap for a gaming headset. I've seen good headsets online for more than 10 times that much. But it's working better than what I had. I don't even need my homemade sock filter, and I'm pretty happy about that, I must say. Do let me know if you think there's an increase or a decrease in sound quality. You can email me at sdrost01 at gmail.com. That's Sierra Delta Romeo Oscar Sierra Tango 01 at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter under the username Cybernetic Tiger. You can also find me on the Quora.com question and answer platform, and if you do find me there, you'll probably note that some of the material for the podcast is cribbed from my own posts on that site, which raises an interesting question. Is it still plagiarism if you're copying from yourself? I sure hope not. I'm going to have a hard time paying for a lawyer if I end up suing myself. So, to the matter at hand. For the past few weeks, I've been talking ad nauseum, some might say, about my favorite Stephen King book, The Stand. I've been exploring in some depth various different characters. It occurred to me that a discussion of Mother Abigail might be interesting, but then I started to have second thoughts about that. To be honest, I think that although she is the strongest, wisest, and one of the most admirable characters in the story, she's actually not all that interesting, and that got me thinking. I like a lot of the good guys, but I think I could do a few more episodes on the subject of what makes the black hats more interesting than the white hats. I think that perhaps down the road away I'll do an episode on the subject of contemporary mythology, what makes the good guys good and the bad guys bad. Why is it, do you suppose, that the bad guys are the ones that we're the most interested in? Do we find the good guys boring? I actually don't think so. Something to think about, and hopefully I can provide a little bit of perspective today in that respect. As promised, I'm going to talk a little bit today on the subject of Randall Flagg, both in the context of The Stand and also a little bit in the context of the larger body of Stephen King's stories. Now, it's always seemed to me that Flagg is a villain who is so huge that one book isn't enough to contain him. In The Stand, when we first meet him, it's at a point in his sort of continuum when he's first coming into the awareness of himself. I know that's kind of an odd thing to say, but I can't think of a better way of describing what is happening with the character when we meet him for the first time. He's walking down Highway 51 in southern Idaho when this happens, west of Twin Falls, somewhere between Grassmere and Riddle. I'm not exactly sure, but I may have driven that stretch of highway at one time myself. He's headed for Nevada when something curious happens to him. 
All at once, he seems to realize who he is. His location at that moment is not a coincidence, random though it may seem. King points out that Flagg is at that time carrying leaflets and pamphlets from dozens of different anti-establishment and domestic terror groups, and there's a reason for this. Judging from his own location and trajectory, he's coming from northern Idaho, which you may or may not know is home to some pretty intense people. Anti-establishment types who don't recognize the authority of the U.S. government. Ruby Ridge, where a deadly confrontation between extreme right-wing fundamentalists and federal agents occurred in 1992, is there. So it would seem that King's intention in having Flag coming from that direction would be to create something of an association between him and those extremist types the area is known for, although the average person might not realize this upon reading the book for the first time. I know myself, I certainly didn't make that connection until much later. King doesn't say that Flagg was responsible for what happened at Ruby Ridge, since the incident there happened in 1992 and the book was first written in 1978, but if anything, that makes his writing more prescient than ever, because Flagg is definitely coming from that direction, and King seems to be implying something that hasn't happened, even though it could have happened. And it doesn't change the fact that northern Idaho is home to some of these types of people, and has been for a lot of years, certainly at least as early as 1978. Not only that, but Flagg is the kind of person who is often at the heart of conflict. It's in his nature to be there. When we meet him here on the road, King says that he is well known by the poor, the mad, and professional revolutionaries, but at that moment he still seems to be an ordinary person, a dangerous person, perhaps, but an ordinary revolutionary at worst. And then something seems to happen to him. He's coming from a meeting with an eco-terrorist group that had blown up a power station in Wyoming, but he suddenly stops because he can sense something a shift in the fabric of reality, perhaps, coming to him. It's not 100% clear what is happening to him here. Perhaps he's being reborn again, transformed from an ordinary revolutionary into some kind of evil spirit, or perhaps he has always been this demon and is just now beginning to become active. Although it seems as though he is undergoing some sort of fundamental change for the first time, becoming who he is meant to be, King does make it clear that it's not Flag who is changing at this point. It is the world that's changing around him. He's no longer a demon disguised as a two-bit counter-revolutionary, but rather a full-fledged evil spirit, no longer making a pretense of hiding behind a mask of humanity, but now fully realized as a force to be reckoned with. King confirms this when he goes on to say that Flagg believes himself to have been quote-unquote born in a symbolic sense during the first civil rights surge of the 60s. He indicates that he can't remember much of his life before that time, except, interestingly, that he believes himself to have come originally from Nebraska, which is where Mother Abigail is located. Flagg appears in many other King works, very often recognizably as himself, always as the bad guy, but this is generally accepted to be the first time we get to see him seemingly make some kind of transition into a different type of a person. It's confusing. The revolutionary character is something, but then he has to become someone else. He becomes the person that he is putatively known to be. Because Flagg is, as my late father might have said, something else. He's later described as an evil wizard in King's fantasy novel, The Eyes of the Dragon, but he also plays a significant part in the Dark Tower series as the main character's nemesis. 
Interestingly, although he appears in different places in different books with different names, he's almost always recognizably the same person. The reader always gets a few clues about him that enable us to identify him. One of the simplest ones is the fact that no matter where he appears, he almost always seems to have the same initials. Now, there could be a number of different reasons for this, but I think that the real reason is the most clever possibility of all. The king wants, without having to hit us over the head with it, for his readers to recognize the character immediately when they see him. It's true that it might be possible to single out the character based on his essential nature, but I think that it's quite a bit more fun to see him and recognize him by his initials. In The Stand, he's primarily known as Randall Flagg, but it's mentioned during the course of this story and others that he has alternatively gone by other names. Russell Faraday, Richard Fannin, Richard Fremantle, Rudin Falero, Richard Fry, Robert Frank, Ramsey Forrest, Raymond Fiegler, and Richard Ferris. He also appears as a dark character called the Covenant Man in The Wind Through the Keyhole. Although he isn't given a proper name in that story, at one point he does identify with the initials RF, and King has confirmed that the Covenant Man is meant to be an iteration of the same character. This is quite brilliant. I haven't really known another author to try anything quite like this particular trick of characterization. King may not be the best writer in the world, but he is a heck of a storyteller, and this is one of the ways that he shows it. Now, there are some out there who might accuse him of being a lazy writer, and to be honest, I'm not going to argue with that. They might be right. We can discuss that at another time, maybe. But in his defense, I would say that it's not really King's ambition to be a quote-unquote writer per se, so much as it is his ambition to be a storyteller. And as I've always said, there's definitely a difference. I think that... One of the key things to remember about Randall Flagg is what Mother Abigail says about him. He ain't Satan, she said, but he and Satan know of each other and have kept their counsels together of old. That's a fascinating idea theologically. It places Flagg in a pretty interesting place in some heavy company. He's not a demon in a hierarchical sense. He doesn't rank below the devil, but rather as an equal of some kind. Beyond being interesting, it's also kind of a terrifying idea if it's true. I'm not quite sure I'm on the same page as Mother Abigail on this particular thing. If Randall Flagg is the equal of the devil, why was he so constrained by his physical limitations or his inability to be in more than one place at a time? You could also argue that it wouldn't have been possible to dispatch him with something as simple as a nuclear bomb, although the counter-argument would probably be that Flagg wasn't really killed by the nuclear explosion, only displaced and forced to start over again somewhere else. Remember, among other things, the extremely odd thing that happens just before the bomb goes off. The person who is presumed to be Flagg is telling Lloyd to make the trash can man take the bomb away, and trash who is apparently somewhat prescient himself, turns around and asks where Flag is. Why? Because Trash doesn't see Flag standing right in front of him? Not exactly. It would be more to the point to say that Flag isn't there anymore. The demon, who is Flag, appears to have left his physical body behind. And what is up with him choosing names with the initials RF all the time? I personally have what is probably a bit of an unorthodox theory about this character's specific attachment to his initials. 
Having spent a little bit of time many years ago as a student working in broadcasting, I became familiar with the phenomenon of radio frequency interference, often referred to simply as RF. This type of disturbance may have a range of effects. It may degrade the performance of a circuit or stop it from functioning. It can increase error rate in the case of a data path. This is how I think of the character, as someone who is a disturbance generated by an external source. Now, there are, of course, natural sources of RF interference, but I like to think that Flagg thinks of himself as something else, outside the realm of created things, an artificial, non-natural, synthetic aberration. He's a nuclear blackout. He's an interference signal in the normal operation of the universe, a snarl of line noise on an otherwise clear transmission, an unwanted disturbance in an electrical signal. He's a biochemical deviation. He's radiation sickness. He gets in your bones when you aren't even aware that he's there, and by the time you realize you've been exposed, the cancer is all through you, and it's too late. While under hypnosis, Tom Cullen says of Flag, He looks like anybody you see on the street, but when he grins, birds fall dead off telephone lines. The grass yellows up and dies where he spits. He's always outside. He came out of time. He doesn't know himself. He has the name of a thousand demons. Jesus knocked him into a herd of pigs once. His name is Legion. He's afraid of us. We're inside. He knows magic. He can call the wolves and live in the crows. He's the king of nowhere. Now, some of this description is fairly straightforward, but considering the fact that it's Tom Cullen who's saying them, Tom Cullen, a character who is meant to be developmentally delayed, some of these things are pretty odd. There's significant religious imagery generously mixed in, but then again, there almost would have to be, considering the nature of the character he's describing. Maybe this is what King was talking about when he characterized the story as a tale of dark Christianity. I don't think Flag is the equal of Satan, but he certainly is one bad dude who bears watching. Well, as one of my university professors used to say, I see that our time is up, but fear not, I will return in due time, more or less. Tune in, hopefully next week, to hear me say something a lot like the things I said today, only about a different thing. Specifically, I'm going to take a temporary break from talking about The Stand to talking about one of my favorite films, Blade Runner. And the specific topic I'm going to bore you with is what kind of a person is Eldon Tyrell when no one's playing chess with him in the elevator when they're on their way to kill him. I know, that's pretty specific. Maybe it'll make more sense next week. If you like, you can watch the movie before next week's episode comes out. That will probably make it make more sense, too, unless you watch the director's cut or the final cut version. You know what? We'll talk more about it next week. Until then, remember this. They don't advertise for killers in the newspaper.